I hope you brought a pillow today because I've got a long sermon. Oh, I've got a mixed, mixed reception there. Some are pleased, some are not. Oh, good on you, right. Brothers and sisters in Christ, today we're starting the last chapter of the book of James, chapter 5. So please, if I could ask you to turn there now. As we will shortly see, this section is unmistakably directed at non-Christians, which of course begs the question as to why. Why would James be at pains to include a bit like this in a message that is generally uh, intended for those who are believers? Well, it starts to make a bit more sense when we realise that uh, the whole um, theme of James is a a practical, no-nonsense bit of advice, and um, and that's what James is renowned for. He's most concerned about how believers are going to live in terms of sanctifying behaviour. He wants us to focus on living God's way and not the world's way. In this passage, James shows that he is conscious that many folk will look with envy on the wealthy and oh, all of us here know that that's not just an ancient illness or one that affects only non-believers because as long as one man has had even a little bit more than the next, well, that green-eyed monster of envy has been there. And we all have nice dreams about what we would do if we had a big chunk of money. But as James will show us, the reality of being wealthy without the right spirit is not generally the blessing that it appears to be. So, we'll see from God's word that we need not aspire to be wealthy in monetary terms. There's a historical aspect here because historically we know that James was writing mostly to poor folk who did suffer at the hands of rich landowners and merchants and they had to live with the frustration of not having any way to get back at them. They had no opportunity for justice. Well, says James, you can be satisfied that justice will come at the hands of the most just, which of course is God himself. Even today, Christians cannot afford to ignore these warnings since the behaviour that we are speaking about has some evidence of existence in everyone and has potential for the most serious consequences. To see what God's word has to say to us in this regard, then let's read James 5 verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now I pray that God will bless the understanding of his words to our hearts today. This section starts in exactly the same one as the previous one in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now. Does anybody here remember the tone that was intended? Hmm. 
Is that it? Mm. <laughs> if you will uh, recall, this wasn't a polite request to take notice. It wasn't, <clears throat> or, mm, but come now, listen to me. That's what James is saying. Okay? Pay attention. He has a strong point to make and he wants us to listen. He also wants us to drag our imaginations back to the present, to now. Come now. Okay? Come now. Because he, wants, because he knows that we often avoid thinking about the consequences about what we're doing in the instant of now. But now is real. Come to now, says James. So to whom is James addressing this very strong appeal? Well, the rich, of course. The text tells us that. It's obvious, isn't it? Well, maybe. But who and what is rich? Do you think that you have to be like Bill Gates to be rich? You know, I once read um, that somebody with obviously too much time on their hands had worked out that if Bill Gates was walking along the streets outside his office and he saw a US $500 bill in the gutter, it wasn't worth his time to pick, bend over and pick it up. Okay? Because he was making so much money from his normal, normal business activities that the couple of seconds that he wasted to bend over okay, was more expensive than the $500 in the, in the gutter. Is that how, how wealthy we have to be? Well, I would suggest, no, not necessarily. It's a, it's a bit of an aside, really, but I think it's a valuable insight because the Greek word that's used here for rich, well, it, it generally does refer to money, but it also means having an abundance. Well, an abundance of what? Oh, maybe it's time. Maybe you are rich in time. Perhaps you have an abundance of kindness. And of course, that's a sort of wealth as well. And there are lots of ways in which we have been blessed that make us wealthy. And learning to recognize them and making the effort to spread them around to bless others I think, is the first challenge that we can take from this passage. I think it's obvious, though, that spreading the richness of your time and kindness around is not going to be grounds for the weeping and howling that have just been referred to. The next thing that occurs is that it might be that we don't believe that we have enough wealth to share. And, of course, it can seem like that, but let's recognize, too, that wealth is relative. We might have a very small house and an old car here in New Zealand, but I can assure you that having visited their houses, that to tribesmen in remote parts of Africa who live in dwellings made of grass and thatch, those are unimaginable riches. Do we recognize the blessings that we have in simple things like turning on the tap and having clean water coming out, or maybe walking into a room and flicking a switch? And having lights? I suspect that the people of Canterbury might have an answer for that right now. As James goes on to describe the appropriate response of the rich man, should he understand his true circumstances, James uses some very strong and frankly surprising words. Weep and howl. This isn't just ouch material, I've touched something hot. These are the sounds that we hear only when real and serious pain is present. 
So, today's piece of useless information. Who has heard of the word onomatopoeia? Hmm? Onomatopoeia. It's a great word and it describes words that sound like their meanings. Okay, and these are some of my personal favourites. Okay, the back home where I come from, one of the main languages spoken is Shona. And their word for motorcycle is Mududu. Okay, because it sounds like the beat of a single, single cylinder motorcycle, doesn't it? Mududu. And also like uh, Chigubu. Okay, now a Chigubu is a, you, you know the plastic 20 litre pails that you get oil in sometimes? Okay, that's a chigubu. Why is it a chigubu? Because when you pour it, it goes chigubu. <laughs> yeah? And that, folks, is onomatopoeia. And uh, the Greek word for hell is also onomatopoeic. It's this ololudzo word. Isn't that interesting? And apart from here, it's only found in the books of the Old Testament prophets. And it is used to describe the reaction of the wicked on the day of the Lord when he comes again and the context that it's used in is always one of judgment and it makes it clear that the miseries James talks about will be experienced after death not here on earth they are the punishments to be administered by God to the unrepentant rich man on the day of judgment this language that, that he's using makes it really clear that they aren't just going to be of the slap on the wrist kind because something that will make a proud and wealthy man weep and howl that will bring miseries miseries plural note indicating great depth of pain is clearly to be avoided so we would be doing well to pay attention to what James has to say next and hopefully (laughs) the rich man is listening too he asks us Well, what is the real value of earthly possessions by questioning whether they stand the test of time? And it's a telling measure because in the context of eternity, nothing that has substance that I can touch will last. And I'd like to talk about that in a little while. But before I do, I want to ask you to think about eternity. The mathematical symbol for eternity is that. And uh, some of you, if you think about your high school maths, you might have come across that. It's an hourglass on its side and it represents an endless loop with no beginning and no end. In this congregation, we are all at different stages in our lives, but we do have some concept of time. We know what it feels like, how long a day is, how long a month or a year the way that some of Dave's sermons just drag on. With that feeling of time in mind, though it might make you dizzy, try to imagine living not just three score years and ten, not just a hundred or even ten thousand or a million, but forever. With no end. Ever. Just like that symbol. Just hang on to that thought for a bit. Although we probably don't want to think about our lives ending, they certainly will. So what comes next? Yeah? What sort of existence might that be? 
Is it going to be good? Or is it going to be bad? Well, Scripture tells us that there are only two alternatives. For those who follow Jesus, there is heaven. And for those who do not, hell. It's very simple and clear cut. We are going to spend forever either in heaven or in hell. So what are those places going to be like? What have, what have you experienced so far in your life? Have you laboured hard? Have you known struggle and hardships? Has your life included grief and pain? Well, in heaven, Scripture promises that they will all end. As we read in the book of Revelation, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Heaven is clearly a place of good things, something we would want to attain, especially when you think about being there forever. So, what about hell? Well, the Greek word used for hell is Gehenna. It describes the site of future punishment, um, sometimes known as Gehenna or Gehenna of fire. In order to create a powerful picture in the mind of the readers of those biblical times, it, it spoke about a well-known place in Israel, which was originally the Valley of Hinnom, and this was south of Jerusalem, and it was a place where they took the filth and all the garbage and stuff that was left over and dead animals, and they took them out and they threw them into this valley, and was burned there. Can, can you imagine what that place was like? It's a fit symbol of the wicked and their future destruction. Hell, friends, is an awful pit. It is a place of filth and corruption. It is a place of stench and decay and fire. In the book of Matthew, chapter 13, Jesus is talking to the disciples, explaining what the kingdom of heaven is like through the use of many parables. And in verse 47, he goes on to give this picture of hell. And he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. They sat down and they gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? Have you understood all these things? I pray that you are listening as a believer in Christ. If you are, then you know what I'm going to say. You know these things. The essence of our character which makes us, us, is a spirit that will live on eternally after we die in one of two places either in heaven with God or in hell with Satan as we've seen the first is to be sought after the other is to be feared let us be clear though that we cannot get to heaven through our own merit or effort because of this popular misconception of being a good person well it's just that a misconception it's a lie it isn't good enough. But we will 
get to heaven. Sorry, we will get to hell on our own. We can do that on our own. Man is born to sin. All of us have and all of us will. Sin separates us from God and heaven in a way that no man can bridge. The imperfect cannot make itself perfect. Although God in his very nature is righteous and therefore he has to punish us for sin, the other side of his character is that he has an enormous love and that longs to bring about reconciliation between us and him. And because he is perfect, he can bring about perfection. And to achieve this, he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for my sin and for your sin. His crucifixion means that if you repent of your sin and accept Jesus as your Savior, heaven will be your eternal, forever home. For all others, it will be hell. What will you choose? What have you chosen? If the Holy Spirit has stirred you today and you need to know more about salvation through Jesus, I ask you, come please and talk to me or one of the elders after the service. It's the most important thing that you can or will ever do. Much as I'd like to end here, because this is a meaningful moment, there's still a good proportion of the text left, so we must continue. Now, it's some time since you've had to endure one of my physics lessons. So, here I go. I can see John is shaking his head already. I'm in deep fear of John Wright because he teaches physics. As he said, he said before he's going to shout heresy from the back. <laughs> Earlier I said we were going to look at why nothing that we can touch is going to last forever. And this is thanks to a thing called entropy. Okay? Entropy. What sort of thing is that? It sounds very flash, but actually we are all really, really familiar with its effects. It's more complicated than I can understand, but basically it says this. All things tend towards disorder. Okay? Had to fix your car because something broke or wore out. Ken, rust in the back window. Yeah? Blame entropy. House in a mess. Well, it's actually the same, the same um, culprit. Does your body no longer cooperate with you in the same way that it used to? Mm. <laughs> On a larger scale, every day that the sun shines by consuming itself, it brings itself nearer to the end, and thus to solar systems, galaxies, and ultimately the universe. Entropy shows that wherever we look, we could go as far as you like from the earth. All things go downhill and wear out, and so it is even with substances such as gold and silver, which we call noble metals because they do not visibly corrode. Although that we generally believe that these precious metals don't decay, the truth is that they do, just very slowly. And this is what James is talking about when in verses 2 and 3 he says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I'm pretty sure that James didn't know about entropy, but he did know that treasures laid up on earth are useless after we die. 
It doesn't matter how carefully we look after them, how good the quality of the physical object was when you bought it new, whether it was 100% pure gold or whatever it is, entropy is going to get it. However, eternal life based on salvation through Jesus is imperishable. It will never wear out or tarnish. It will always remain perfect and unchanged. If we put our trust for life security and physical wealth, like the rich man, the decay of the physical things that we own will bear witness to everyone that we have kept our eyes downward on the perishable and not upwards towards the imperishable security of Jesus. And this is what James is trying to point out in the very strongest of language. It occurs to me that our modern love of new stuff, of always trying to buy the latest and the best, the biggest TV, is really a frantic effort to outpace entropy. If we are continuously surrounded by the excitement of new things, then we're not going to stop and think about our own inevitable decay and death, and especially what waits for us afterwards. Although we might not be listening to God's call, the conscience that he has given us nags at us. And what we call consumerism is one of the ways that we are trying to silence it. Now, imagine two men standing before God at the final judgment. Okay? One stands beside a big pile of things, money, cars, houses, and in my case, probably tools. Although he may have treasured them, as physical things, they're all going to show decay in some way. And that decay is really going to be shown up against the crystal clear, pure and perfect light of God. And it proclaims that that man put his trust in those things, in the accumulation of earthly treasures. He took his pleasure in those and spent his labour in the acquisition. Now there's another man there, but he's in rags. He doesn't have much worldly wealth, but there's a big crowd of people behind him praising God for their salvation. This man has laid up a heavenly treasure through proclaiming the gospel in obedience to the Father. And the witness of those people behind him are going to bring him a rich reward in heaven. What kind of man are we going to be in that picture? What treasure are we going to take to heaven? In verse 3 we read that the corrosion of worldly wealth will eat flesh like fire. On the other hand, the message that we're getting from advertising is that accumulating things is going to make us feel happy and good. Okay? That nothing bad happens when you buy. When we really stop and think about it, we realise that this isn't true. Okay? Got a picture coming up, I hope. This is what flesh looks like when it's been eaten by fire. Okay, that is a picture of a third degree burn. It's very ugly. Heat is tremendously damaging to living flesh. And flesh that is scorched by flames will be left with deep hollows and thick scars. Well, the damage that's caused by the flame of greed is not as visible, but it is just as deep. Its evidence is in the way our energy is directed to the cause of obtaining more of anything that gives us an earthly thrill instead of being focused on the service of God. 
Now let me be clear. I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to enjoy our lives or that having a comfortable way of life is sinful. Okay? None of those things are wrong. And certainly God does bless us in those ways. Where we will go wrong though is when God loses his rightful place of number one, of being first in our lives because we turn away to chase after some shiny baubles that are so winningly advertised. James now goes on to make some very specific accusations. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Well, there are two ways of actually looking at this phrase. Firstly, that the rich have literally amassed great amounts of wealth without recognising the time that they live in, that they are living in the last days, the days before Christ will come again. Okay? The days for which all men will be called to account and which they ought to be using their wealth for God's glory. Secondly, what the rich men see that they are piling up as treasure is actually the wrath and vengeance of God on the day of judgment. What an enormous waste of time and what terrible consequences. When I first read this passage, I was full of righteous indignation. Yeah, rotten guys, rich men, you'll get your lot. Yeah, lucky I'm not like them. Hmm. But then, as always, I found myself confronted by my own life in the preparation of a sermon because I know that I have more than I need and yet I still want more. I pray that God will forgive us for our greed, lead us to a place where we are content with what he has provided and help us to lay up heaps of heavenly treasure. As I said, God does provide for us in so many ways and he isn't against us living comfortably or being prudent to put something away for a rainy day, but he is not pleased with hoarding and heaping. This word heaps tells us that there is a pile of wealth beyond what is necessary for normal life. I usually need a handful, but I want a heap. Well, that points to an obsession with gain, to the exclusion of God, and also to a lack of trust in his provision. Moreover, God is especially not pleased when we have piles of stuff that we don't use, but only have for our own gratification but they are desperately needed by other people. This is evidence of a spirit of meanness and cruelty that is sometimes seen in wealthy people. And I read a good line that Spurgeon had come up with. He said, For such is the malignity of some that they grudge to others the common son and heir. And we've probably met people like that. Okay, They've got heaps of stuff, but they really don't want to give you anything. I don't even want to give you a moment of their time. They're so mean. Let's be sure to measure what we have against what we actually need and be ready to share it with others as they have need. Now this spirit of meanness was definitely in James's mind as he wrote verse 4. He said, Indeed the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud cry out and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Our obsession with gain can be so profound as to cause us to take not only our own share 
but we actually grab the share of those around us. And that's a place where greed becomes partnered with cruelty. And we've gone to a very ugly and dangerous place when the need for more takes us this far. Especially when we read that this practice that we're speaking about, of taking the wages of the labourer, what's very specifically uh, forbidden by God in Deuteronomy. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. We've repeatedly seen throughout Scripture that God has a very special place in his heart for the poor. And consequently, I have no doubt that he will most severely punish those who are found to be persecuting them. And we must not imagine that their poverty gives them no voice. Because as we have read, God is listening to their cries. Let us be sure then that we are treating those less well off than us fairly. Okay, this is um, rather obviously a hammer. <laughs> it's one of a builder's most useful tools. Well, he can drive in nails with it. He can take them out too. He can break down walls. He can drive a chisel to install a lock or adjust the fit of timbers with it as well as many other things. A good steel hammer like this will cost you about $60 and if you look after it, it'll last you a very long time. Ken, I seem to remember when we were working outside, how long did you say you'd had your hammer? 60 years. Okay? 60 years. Now, I discovered the other day that you can now buy hammers made of a material called titanium. Okay? That's very nice because titanium is it's a very light material, it's extremely strong, and it doesn't rust. There's one small problem. Okay? They cost $400. Okay, $400. This isn't a titanium hammer, by the way. It does the same job, but it costs five times as much. And that seems to me to be a very good example of luxury, which is what James is talking about next. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Now, I came across an interesting term that's been around for over a hundred years and it's, uh, it's used to describe this kind of living named conspicuous consumption. Ah, see Ray, we're getting to it. Conspicuous consumption is a term that's used to describe over-the-top spending on titanium hammers and goods and services which we've bought mostly just to show off. In the mind of a conspicuous consumer, such a display serves as a means of attaining or maintaining social status. And we often call this keeping up with the Joneses. And it turns out there's something even worse, which is described as invidious consumption. (laughs) And it's a more specialised term used to describe those kind of people who buy stuff just to make you envious. Nice people. I suspect that Paris Hilton might be the foremost practitioner of that art. Why do we even need terms like this? It's because great wealth has the same effect now as it did in James' time. 
Once again, we see a loss of focus, not upwards towards God, but inwards towards self. Searching and labouring for things that feel good, and not just in a small measure either. Because there's this powerful image here in the phrase, fatten your hearts as in a day of slaughter. The mental picture that I have here is the way that um, predatory animals like lion, well, when they make a large kill, they don't just have a bite or two and go away. Okay, They get absolutely stuck in. I'm sure most of us seen, have seen these pictures of them. They walk away and their stomachs are like a drumskin. You think they're going to burst. Okay, And they do this because they can't see ahead. <coughs> because they have no trust in the future. So they take as much as they can and not what they need, even to the extent of fighting amongst themselves. As Christians, our calling is to use what we need and share what we don't, recognising God as the source of our provision and trusting in Him for the future. I think the ladies might be more familiar with this, but um, have you heard the saying, an instant on the lips and forever on the hips? Yes. Okay. Here James is talking about spiritual excess, not physical. So the fat goes to the heart, not the hips. And what good friends is a fat heart? Okay. It's useless. It points to a person holding on to the things of love and not sharing them. Love of self and not love of others. And this is not the example given to us by Christ. And we know that it specifically doesn't fill fulfill one of those two great commandments, does it? Eh? Love your neighbour as yourself. As Christians, we have no cause for a fat heart. Firstly, our focus is on God, or should be on God, not material gain. And secondly, we have this trust in God's providential work for the future. We never have the need to take advantage of windfalls. And lastly, we should be giving out what God has placed in our hearts a love for our fellow man and a love for our Heavenly Father. Our final verse for today is this. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. There are two sins here. First of all, you have condemned. What this means is that you have usurped God and taken His place in deciding who should have what and the who is you. It sounds a bit like Dr. Zeus. Secondly, you have murdered the just. You have not only judged, okay, and the Greek word that's rendered just is a judicial one. It's one you would hear in the courts. So you haven't just judged, but you've actually determined and executed a, ser- a sentence, not for righteousness' sake, but for your own. And it might seem extreme, but the truth is that People actually do murder for the sake of greed. (coughs) And they might murder for $20 or $20 million. But the motive is the same. So the figure really is irrelevant. The lesson is that we shouldn't underestimate the potential for total ruin if we allow lust for things into our lives. And the act of murder is compounded by its perpetration on the just. Not that I'm saying that murdering the unjust is to be encouraged, but even a poor excuse like that is denied to them. 
There are some commentators who suggest that the just or righteous man referred to here is Jesus, but the context of persecution by the rich that we find in the rest of the passage makes more sense to see them as the kind of poor person typically exploited by the rich and powerful because they just are financially unable to defend themselves or they're just so beaten down by the hopelessness of their position. Hence this final part of the verse, he does not resist you. It's really despicable to prey on such people. So that brings our review of this passage to a conclusion. My earnest prayer though is that this instant, this place we got to the end of the the sermon just about, just about, um, would not be the conclusion of your thoughts on it. What then can we take forward with us? Well, to start with, we can never read God's word as relating only to them and not to us. For example, can we be sure that we are not the rich men referred to in this case? If we have wealth, and if you remember, I suggested it doesn't have to be financial, then can we find some ways to practically spread it around for God's glory and not just use it as conspicuous consumers? How hooked up are we on the advertiser's message? Do we always want more and the latest? And if so, well, what can we do about it? Stuck in a a doctor's waiting room recently. Actually, men, how do you feel about going to doctor's waiting rooms? Why do they only ever have, like, Woman's Weekly in there? Have you noticed that? Or Garden Gnome and stuff like that. They don't have, you know, Top Gear or something useful. Anyway, I I was reading about a lady who worked in the fashion industry. She wasn't uh, a designer or anything clever. She was just a secretary. But because she she worked in that industry, she gradually got sucked into the whole thing and she suddenly found out that she had a wardrobe full of clothes. A whole heap of them she'd never worn. But she just had to go and say, oh, I like this top. And she bought it. And she realised that this has just taken over her life. So what she decided to do was she made a commitment to take a year off. She said, I'm not going to buy anything new. Okay, I'm going to use whatever I've got in my cupboard. And moreover, I'm going to get rid of all the stuff I don't use. Well, she found it to be really hard. She's not a Christian, but she found out, and she said in her article, that she felt she was a much better and more balanced person for that. And maybe that's a good thing we could decide to do, not to just go and buy the latest hammer. Another question, do we treat others fairly and generously or do we want to build up piles of stuff just to have them? God is not against us being wealthy or prudent, but he does want us to use our worldly wealth for his glory. I just want to finish up by reading a passage from Psalm 50. It's quite long, but... um, I want to read it to you because it speaks of what of the size of the God that we serve and and why we need not be afraid for the future because basically he owns everything and it goes Hear, O my people and I will speak O Israel 
and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. God is the owner of everything. He promises to provide what we need and sometimes what we need is to pass on what he has given us to others. Let us pray. Father, you've called us to be salt and light in the world. You've called us to be different. Father, that's not always easy, but we want to be obedient to you. Father, one of the ways that we can give practical witness to what it's like to be a Christian is to deal responsibly with what you've given us. I pray that the words that we've seen today would lie in our hearts and provoke us to deal with our possessions in a way that glorifies you and draws attention to your goodness and your providential work for us. Please set your Holy Spirit in our hearts to murmur to us of these things as we go out of here today and to live our days for you. We ask this... In Jesus' name, amen.